I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? <laughs> Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Michael Patton, and this is Theology Unplugged, coming to you from the Credo House in Edmond, Oklahoma. I'm joined in studio once again by Tim and Sam. Hello, hello. Welcome, guys. Greetings. Good Great to, be to have here. you guys. Um, and we are continuing our subject of uh, invitation to Calvinism, right? That's correct. Yep. Have we got approval to keep on going with this? Or? We, we have the green light. All right, none of the board members haven't written. They're texting me right now, but if we do it quickly, we can get this broadcast through. All right, good. Um, this seems to be, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, outside of the Emerging Church series that we did like four years ago, Yeah, this seems to be the most popular series that we have had on Theology Unplugged. Um, and appreciate. We're, we're thoroughly enjoying it as well. Yeah, lots of new listeners, so keep yeah. that in mind, guys. I mean, people who have never listened to Theology Unplugged before are listening to it now, so we welcome you guys. We thank you all for joining us. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, you know, we are unplugged. It is, being unplugged does not mean that we are in here kind of just amusing for the first time about a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're trying to speak really openly and candidly about issues of theology. That's one of the reasons why I ask you guys not to be too structured whenever we come in here. As a matter of fact, we were having a conversation just before we began this broadcast, and it was an unplugged conversation. I said, stop it, guys. This is too good. We've got to get this unplugged. It's be on air. <laughs> but we're continuing, guys, uh, to talk about uh, uh, the invitation to Calvinism. Specifically, we've been talking about the acronym TULIP, and most specifically, we've been talking about un conditional election. Now, I know we keep on doing this, but Tim, briefly, unconditional election. Tell me about it. Uh, Yeah, briefly, it it refers to the idea derived from Scripture that we believe that what God has done is that he has elected people uh, for salvation based on no work of that individual. And so uh, so Sam, I believe, is is a believer. He is a fully elect person, but it is not like God looked into the future and said, uh, wow, look at Sam there. Uh, that's that's a, a great guy there, and I, I think he'll, he'll, he'll be a fine a fine soldier of mine. He'll be a fine follower of mine, and so, so I'm going to select him. Uh, hey, and good looking to boot. Yeah, he is a he's he's a he's a good looking man. He is. I like his sweaters. Old. <laughs> well, you, you. We can tell you used to be good looking. Yeah, on one time. Yeah. Yeah. You, you age well. You're like a nice wine. Entropy is <laughs> Uh, but then, uh, of course, as well, one of the things that we talk about, and we don't, we don't hold this doctrine lightly by any means, is that therefore it also mean that God unconditionally elects other people uh, to not be uh, in heaven, and and so it, it is something that we believe God teaches us, and we have been, of course, that is why we're spending several uh, broadcasts on this because this is a doctrine from Scripture that uh, many people will wrestle with. Um, but we also believe that we should not run away from it because we believe, as we looked at last week, that Romans 9 uh, especially is one of these areas of Scripture where, where God clearly is revealing What did we this call to them us. a few weeks ago? Um, closet doctrines. Yeah, closet doctrines. It's that closet doctrines. Yeah, and what we want to do is just come into the light and talk about this and uh, discuss unconditional election. And so we, uh, we talked about more from a theological doctrine-type perspective two weeks ago. Last week we got into... Uh, 
looking at Romans 9 predominantly uh, and walking through that section, and now we're going to spend another week talking about uh, Scripture that points us towards uh, this doctrine. Last week was Romans 9. I think we just... I, I, I'm glad we spent the entire time on it. Mm-hmm. It is... Uh, it is uh, For me, it's the most convincing. I wouldn't say, though... That if Romans chapter 9 were not there, at least today, I wouldn't say that uh, I wouldn't still believe in this doctrine because it is. Okay, hold on a second. There are many negatives there. Can, can you just reword that? If Romans chapter 9 were not there, that would not mean that I would not be a person who believes in unconditional election. <laughs> in other words, why is other that words, so hard? He believes <laughs> in unconditional election even if Romans 9 didn't teach it. No, no. Is, is that correct? <laughs> were be it that Romans 9 were not in the See, this scriptures is, of... This is what theology does to the mind, folks. It muddles the mind. It's caught up with us. Okay. So, you, so all that to say is that I, let, let's talk about unconditional election so, and other passages okay. of scripture. Okay, so if Romans 9 didn't exist, you would still hold to unconditional election. Yeah, yeah. Is that correct? Okay, that's it. I certainly would. (laughs) (laughs) We would. Why? Let's talk about some other passages of Scripture. I mean, immediately to me, Ephesians 1, Romans 9, John 6. Those are the primary passages that I go to, go to passages. Yeah, there are quite a few. The one you mentioned, John 6, I've preached a message many times over the years from John 6 and with the rather uh, controversial title, Was Jesus a Calvinist? I've had some people get upset with that, but uh, I, I try to clarify what I mean, and I think the answer to that is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 37 of John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So he talks about people, sinners, whom the Father has given to the Son. Um, And in response to the grumbling of the Jewish leaders, in response to that, Jesus said in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then again, over in John 10, uh, Jesus is interacting with uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, and uh, in response to their... Um, uh, rejection of him, uh, he says. Um, he says, "I know my own; my own know me." Uh, he says, "I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice." Uh, and then he says something that is is really profound in response um, to the uh, to the religious leaders. I'm trying to find the text. I can't even. My mind is just. Uh, I've just lost it. But he says basically. You do not believe in me because you are not of my sheep. Mm. He doesn't say you're not of my sheep because you don't believe. He says you do not believe in me because you're not of my sheep. And then, of course, you mentioned uh, the the Ephesians 1. God elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestined us to adoption as sons. And we'd have to look at uh, Acts 13, 48. For as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. Well, I think Ephesians two eight nine can speak into that as well. Clearly, that the for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Meaning that God is not look. You know, if God was looking into the future and seeing the fine man that you would become, that would be your doing. That would yeah. be your work that He'd be seeing. That would then uh, get you to be saved. 
it's interesting to me whenever Christ talks about this issue of election and the the terms that he speaks of it in and more of a terms of endearment between a father and a son. And I think oftentimes in these discussions, we do miss that. We look at election from our perspective. Am I elect? You know, what does it mean to be elect, elect, uh, chosen, those types of things. But from Christ's perspective, as, as Sam said just a minute ago, it says, it says, um, this is the will, verse 39, John chapter 6, of him who sent me, of God, my Father, who sent me that all he has given to me, mm-hmm. I don't lose one. Yeah. Now, that, that's incredible from Christ's perspective. The way, and, and you said just a moment ago, my sheep. Christ sees this as a very personal thing. It's, it's, a, it's among the members of the Trinity, this election, this, this idea of predestination is a, is a gift. It's a gift in this sense that, that Christ has come and paid the ultimate price, and in this deal comes that some people will come to him, that some people will be redeemed, that some people will be regenerated. Otherwise, Christ may say up there, whenever they're discussing election before time begins and discussing salvation, hey, wait a minute, if I go do all this, nobody's going to come to me. You know? I mean, they're they're not going to believe because I do this. They're all depraved, totally depraved. And, and the idea here is that unless some are given to him, redemption doesn't make any difference because there's no one to redeem. There's You've got to have a purpose behind this redemption, and this redemption is purposed upon those that God has given to him. Mm-hmm. John 17, uh, that great high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed on behalf of his own, it's amazing. He opens up the prayer. says, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So again, if you want to do the concentric circles, the larger circle is all flesh, all mankind. Jesus says, I have authority over all flesh to do what? to give eternal life to all whom you have given me, the smaller circle, those from among the all flesh on whom he has set his saving love, just as much deserving of eternal damnation as all those in the larger circle. So here Jesus is saying, I have authority over the totality of the human race to give life, eternal life, the knowledge of God the Father, to those, and then we say, to whom? To those, Father, that you have given to me. There are a couple other texts that um, I want to mention along this lines in Revelation. Uh, they're very interesting. Revelation 13 and also again in chapter 17. Um, it, there is this reference to um, the book of life. And it, it's uh, in the context of differentiating between those who worship the beast and those who follow the lamb. Um so let me, if I may, just read this in Revelation chapter 13, um, about the middle of verse 7. Authority was given it, referring to the beast, over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So here is this book of life, and names before the foundation of the world either have been written in it, and they will not worship the beast, or they have not been written in it, and they will worship the beast. And then 
Um, the same thing, in essence, is said over in chapter 17 of Revelation, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Mm-hmm. So again, there is this, this notion that's just inescapable that from the foundation of the world, God inscribed into the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, those who would inherit eternal salvation, the names of hell-deserving sinners. Mm. But he's also equally clear, not all names were written in that book. Um, It's not because those written, uh, again, were blonde-haired, blue-eyed folk living in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Um, I'm the only blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy in the room here, so I didn't (laughs) say that. But uh, it it is solely based... You you have blonde hair? At one time? <laughs> it used to be. It's now platinum. <laughs> platinum. Uh, but again, the, the fact that one's name is inscribed in the book of life is the work, the merciful work um, of, a, of a sovereign God. And all the, you know, everybody whose name is in the, written in the Lamb's book of life can lay their hand on their heart and say, uh, nothing that I have done warranted this, merited this. I deserve to be in the lake of fire, but instead I'm in the Lamb's book of life. And, I mean, just realize what this does for our worship of God. Uh, this this doctrine, I think, when when I just think of this doctrine, I think of how unworthy I am and and how gracious God is to save me. And uh, because there, I could easily, just as easily, not be saved. I could just as easily uh, deserve, which I do, eternal damnation. So the the fact that I can even consider Him, that I can even re- read His Word, and the Spirit is moving in my heart, all of these things just make me uh, fall down and worship Him because it is so undeserved. It is so much God's amazing grace, and uh, that is what propels us to go out and, and to have others uh, trust Christ as their Savior because of this, because it is so undeserved, and God's grace is so amazing in this doctrine. Mm-hmm. By faith you have been saved, and that, by grace through faith you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God that so, no one should boast. So that you won't boast. So you won't think that you did it. Boasting. I mean, th- th- isn't that isn't that in- incredible in that Ephesians 2, 8, 9, so that the purpose clause that is placed upon there, that that it, it, all things said, everything we've talked about, fine, good, but if, if you have any room at all for boasting, even the slightest bit, then we're missing it, right? Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. gonna I'm gonna humble you with this doctrine, so you will worship God, not yourself. James Montgomery Boyce was, uh, gosh, it was 95, I think, 95 or 96, but he was up here at Belle Isle uh, Community Church. What was crossings beforehand, mm-hmm. uh, Belle Isle, and they used to have him come up. I think it was the Whitfield Society uh, that uh, had him come up every single year. But he was giving his lecture, and I, I may have said that. Did I say this in a few broadcasts ago? Cause I, I, don't so. I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, he was giving his lecture, and as I sat there, kind of in the midst of this wrestling match, because I remember getting into the wrestling match, and I remember, like you said, sitting out at University of Oklahoma in the final blow or the final 
humili- humiliation of you to where you submit to an understanding. I was sitting at Belle Isle Community Church listening to James Boyce, and he told the story. It wasn't a story, it was just an illustration. I don't know if he used it all the time or not, but he said, what if we're talking about boasting? And he taught it in his voice, you know, he sounded like a frog. <laughs> what if we're talking about boasting? We gotta see ourselves. No, that doesn't work. Uh, he, he, he pictured us, he said, picture yourself up in heaven and you're walking along heaven, whatever, the streets of gold, whatever. And an angel comes up to you and says, hey, I'm so glad you made it. Uh, how, how did you get here? And well, nothing I did on my own. You know, Christ's cross and I was a sinner and I deserved hell. Well, why are you here though? The angel says, well, you know, it's by God's grace that I'm here. Yeah, the angel says, but but why are you here and that guy, that other guy, isn't? And he said, well, to tell you the truth, you know, I I did submit. I, I have to admit I submitted. <laughs> you know, I, I did have faith. I mean, there wasn't much to it at all. It wasn't anything, you know, big, but uh, it was big enough to get me here. It was big enough for me to reach out my hand and receive the great gift. So I, I received the gift. He did not. So the ultimate cause of you being here, the angel says, is, is, is that you made the choice, whereas the other guy didn't. Yeah, that's it. That, that's what is being taken away from us. You can't even say that. You can't say, well, you know, I, I, I reached out my hand and received the gift. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Faith itself, faith itself, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the whole process is a gift of God and not of ourselves so that we don't, don't boast. You're actually kind of leaping ahead here a little bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, a few programs to come and talking about irresistible grace without using the language. Yeah. Mm. You know, the, I, the, the guy could have said to the angel, if he was answering with understanding, I'm here because by the gracious work of the Spirit, I was effectually and irresistibly drawn contrary to my own nature and desires and given a new sense and a new taste and a new desire for Jesus that I otherwise would never have had. And to him alone, I attribute that conversion. Um, So we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but it does show, it's interesting, it shows how all of these points interlock and interrelate yeah. that uh, if you pull one of them out the the whole tapestry unravels which is something maybe we can talk about in the future mm-hmm. many of these uh, passages that we've been talking about are from the new testament as a matter of fact all of them so far have been from the new testament i think i think it's very clear that we not only see these massive passages ephesians chapter one uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, as you said. Romans 9. Romans 9. John chapter 6. And then you see them, as Sam was given, a sprinkled all throughout mm. uh, in Acts. What was the Acts passage 13, again? 1348. Acts 1348. What does it say again? And those and as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. Mm. And uh, other passages in Acts, excuse me interrupting, like in Acts 11, I don't remember the exact verse where it talks about repentance that is being given unto the Gentiles. Uh, so clearly repentance is itself a gift as much as faith is. And, um, you know, numerous texts of that sort. You know, many texts that don't necessarily use the explicit terminology such as elect or predestined nevertheless speak directly to that point. Uh, and then, of course, one passage we haven't mentioned uh, in Romans, Romans 8. 
yeah. uh, verses 29 and 30. Uh, as many as he foreknew, those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and those whom he predestined he called, those whom he called he justified, those whom he justified he glorified. Uh, and, of course, the word elect itself appears dozens of times uh, throughout the New Testament alone. So uh, you don't have – this is an interesting a point people need to remember. You don't have to have explicit terms – um, in a particular text, for that text to be seen as um, defending or articulating what we know to be unconditional election. The concept can be there, even though the technical terminology uh, may not be found. And so that's it, it is pervasive throughout God's Word. Mm-hmm. Tim, where is unconditional election found in John, Third uh, John, though? That's what I want to know. In Third John? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I'll have to get back to you on that one. Okay. If I don't find it in Third John, you know, you, you then, guys bring up a lot of stuff. Yeah. I gotta find it everywhere. Sam, uh, Sam looks expectant. Like he's like, you know what? I'm <laughs> there. I am so there. I will find it. If you add up all the letters, well, divide it by 12. It's in Second John. <laughs> the Second John opens the elder to the elect lady. Oh, nice, nice. But I did say third John, and I think the ele- I think the lady there is a reference to the church. So it's talking about Michael uh, only builds his theology on third John. So. Third, if it's not in third John, I will not. Yeah, because the name of your ministry is Third John Ministries. Yeah, right. Get in here with Third John. <laughs> no, I, I am bringing up a point here. I promise. Okay. Um, when, when we look at these things, sometimes we say, "Okay, but find it here. But find it here. Find it everywhere for me until I'm really required to believe it." Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things we've got to understand about doctrine, and especially about progressive revelation. Once God decides to become clear about something, He becomes clear about it, and and it could very well be that. Earlier forms of, of revelation, whenever God, not, not inaccurate, but less revealed times of our history, people do not have this idea as much as we might later on articulate it yeah. as well. That is the whole idea of progressive revelation. And, and I think you see that in the Old Testament for sure. I mean, the every page. And that's where I'm going. Yeah. Okay. Is it okay if I go there no, right no, no, now? No, no, okay. No. So every page of the Old Testament is not speaking about unconditional election. But what's interesting is that Romans 9 is filled with Old Testament examples. And so Paul is obviously thinking about the Old Testament where he's talking about Jacob and Esau. And he's, he's just very clearly talking about people who he's using as that God does. Does choose some people and not other people in the Old Testament. Abraham is a great example of Isaac. choosing, yeah, and Isaac and uh, people who it, it just, I mean, like Abraham, it doesn't make sense to him why he's choosing Isaac over Ishmael. He's saying, you know, look, here's Ishmael, you know, let's let's work with Ishmael here. Won't Ishmael work? And God over and over is saying, no, 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 I'm going to give you another son through Sarah, and this will be Isaac. That's the one I'm choosing. And so we do see uh, this concept, uh, you know, I would say it's veiled in the Old Testament. It's clear in the New Testament, but I would say it's 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 existing in the Old Testament that that our God. It's characteristic of Him. He doesn't change. It's characteristic of Him. We see in the Old Testament that He does choose some and and not others. You know, uh, He sends Jonah over and over to Nineveh for those for those people at that time. Uh, but at other times, He lets the Ninevites just go and uh, and they just run wild. And so uh, so we do see this concept of Him choosing. And we also have to remember the nature of the literature of the Old Testament. Uh, So much of it is historical narrative as over against reading a book like Romans, which is epistolary. It's very logical. There's a a clear uh, argument that is being unpacked and developed with evidence provided. 
That's not the nature of the book of Genesis. So like Tim just said, in Genesis, we read about God calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and there's this historical unfolding and the emergence of uh, the people of Israel and the seed of Abraham and the stories of Isaac and uh, and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. It would have been uh, profoundly out of place for there suddenly to be inserted into that a more logically uh, articulated Greek formulation, as it were, of um, the the grounds on which God chose Abraham or the ground upon which God chose Isaac. Um, but precisely, that is precisely what Paul's doing in Romans 9. He said, let's go back to that narrative. Let's look at it again through uh, the lens of God's sovereign purpose that was operating behind the scenes. And let's see the terms on which God chose Abraham and not others, the terms and the purpose for which God chose Isaac and Jacob and not others. And again, the, another thing we have to remember, because uh, people do ask this question, is, it, is election found in the Old Testament? What is found in the Old Testament pervasively is the sovereignty of God, mm-hmm. and it's expressed in a variety of different ways. And so what we have is a portrait of the nature of who God is and how he relates to people. Plus, we have through the Old Testament, just as much in the New, sometimes even more so, the the doctrine of total depravity. It is clearly affirmed over and over and over again in multiple texts. Uh, we yeah, also the whole thing's an illustration of total depravity. Exactly. Plus, we have the principle of grace. Um, uh, revealed. Some people are, are shocked by that, that there's actually grace in the Old Testament, but undoubtedly there is. Uh, read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. The sovereignty of God, Psalm 139, Isaiah 40. So uh, we have the principles that um, are, are made known throughout the Old Testament. We have the revelation of the character of God and also the character of fallen mankind. Uh, but do we have text like Romans 9 or Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. No, we don't. Um, and like you said, part of that is just due to the nature of progressive revelation. Um, so I think that... Well, I mean, we talked about Romans chapter 9 beforehand, and he says, it says, you know, who are you to answer back to God? Daniel chapter 4, who are you to hold back the hand of God? No one can hold back his hand and say to him, why have you done what you have done? I mean, Job, same thing. Who are you to come before my corridors and question the way I do it? Mm-hmm. You do have this whole concept of God's sovereignty, and people struggle sometimes with them trying to exert their will over his sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's an extremely important mm-hmm. point. Plus the made. fact that Romans 9 is to a large extent given over to explaining the meaning of certain Old Testament statements yeah. relating to the yeah. sovereignty of God. Well, uh, the Pharaoh. I mean, Exactly. Pharaoh, Jacob and Esau, and so on. So, again, it's it's the way in which a doctrine is present, not whether it is. And it's present, but in a different manner, given the nature of the literature and the progress of, of revelation in the Old Testament. I can take a lot of the things that we've been talking about, about unconditional election, and, you know, uh, formulate my theology based upon this. And I, I do do that, and I think it's fine, because when we talk about, as you said, the New Testament, the New Testament is the New Testament. It is the completion of revelation, and it should fill in a lot of holes. That's what we should think, you know. Mm-hmm. That is progressive revelation. But sometimes I do come upon passages in the Old Testament that I look at, and they do, I, I find it very hard, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the difficulties later on, mm-hmm. but I do find it very hard to understand what is going on here 
whenever I try to filter this through my grid of unconditional election, such as first and foremost, I think, hands down to me, is Genesis chapter 6. Whenever it says it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them and that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves. And the Lord said, my spirit will not strive with man forever because he's also flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120. Then, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made the earth and was grieved in his heart. And he said, I'm going to blot out all of creation from the face of the earth, from the animals to the things created, to the birds in the sky. And I'm sorry I have made them. But, you know, here's the literature and here's the progressive flow. We've got a contrast here. But Noah found favor in the sight of God. From the standpoint, if I'm a Calvinist looking at that, um, I, I would say, wow, that's that doesn't fit quite so well because it seems to be that God is upset because nobody's turning to him. And as a Calvinist, I'd say, wait a minute. <laughs> nobody's turning to him because you didn't choose any of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and Noah's the only one that you chose. And and he didn't find favor in your sight in the sense that, that uh, he was good or, you know, you looked at him and you said, wow, look at him. I didn't, <laughs> didn't get him beforehand and mm-hmm. I'm so glad he made the choices that he did. And, you know, Noah can boast because of uh, finding favor in God's sight. Mm -hmm. Those types of things that we look at and we see and and we say, hey, look at this particular passage. That's what causes people to pause and say, wait a minute, I'm I'm not buying completely into this anymore because I don't know how to read it through this grid all of the time. Where we go? You tell me. That was well put. (laughs) You You've articulated the tension well. Um, well I, I think that's it, tension. Yes, it yeah. is. Um, there's another passage in the New Testament that I, I come back to uh, multiple times when people struggle with this issue, um, and Jesus himself puts it so well. It's another one, I think, that refers, again, to the doctrine of unconditional election. It's in Matthew 11, where Jesus has been uh, uh, denouncing um, Chorazin and Bethsaida, uh, for their rebellion, for their unrepentant attitude toward him, and uh, trying to account for the way in which um, this small ragtag group of followers have embraced Jesus and his message, whereas the religious leaders, the scribes, and those who have had uh, so much opportunity have rejected him. And it says that at that very time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, that's amazing. Jesus is saying, Father, you hid these things from some. You revealed them to others. And I thank you that you've done it that way. Mm-hmm. I'm giving you praise for that. Now, most of us would think of that and say, I don't think I want to thank God for that. I want to indict him. I want to criticize him for it. Tell him to get a PR department and make sure his message is the same. And Jesus says, I thank you for that. And then he unpacks it even more explicitly. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And then this statement. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Well, obviously, the son didn't choose to reveal him to Chorazin and Bethsaida and to the so-called scribes and the wise men of his day because they're in hard-hearted rebellion against him. And then, of course, people's 
hear those words and they think, well, uh, you know, everything is locked in by this eternal decree. What's the purpose of preaching the gospel? What's the purpose of praying? Because everything is in the hands of the Son and those whom he chooses to reveal uh, the Father to. And then immediately, without so so much as missing a beat or taking a breath, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So here's this stunning invitation, indiscriminately given. Anyone who is burdened, anyone who is uh, labored in heart and soul, you need rest, come to me. Now, again, our logical thinking says, wait a minute, those two can't coexist at the same time. Mm -hmm. Jesus, you can't tell me on the one hand that God is to be praised because he's hidden these truths from some and revealed them only to others. And that the only people that know the Father are those to whom you choose to reveal Him. And then you open your arms and invite everyone to come to you? That doesn't work. Oh, Romans, and, Ro- Romans 9. Yeah. It, it does not depend upon the man who wills and the man who runs, but God has mercy. Romans 10. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah. And, exactly. But this is why we're getting back to this word tension that we just jumped on a moment ago. Is that a tension? You bet it is. Of course. It, you hold those things one in each hand, and you say, I've got, to, I've got to throw one of them away. Either I've got to throw away the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty, or I've got to throw away the indiscriminate, universal appeal of the gospel and the invitation. And responsibility of man. Right. And, but Jesus says, no, hold them both together, because I do. So once again, it comes down to, am I going to um, demand that the text meet my criteria as a fallen human being and what my concept of rationality is or am I going to submit to this tension knowing and trusting with confidence that it makes perfectly good sense in the mind of the eternal creator Uh, it really does come down to that and it is a massive um, decision that each individual has to make and how they're going to respond to these kinds of texts. Either or both and tension. Um, don't jettison the gospel. Don't jettison unconditional election. They're both there, and we're saying Jesus is is showing that by his ministry. Paul is showing that within the, even the book of Romans, within one letter he's writing, he's showing both of those. He's telling us that he is he's also pleading with people to be saved, but then is is very clearly speaking about unconditional election as well. well yeah, again, just real quickly, you mentioned Paul. What take for example Acts eighteen? He goes to Corinth. He gets the, excuse me, the crap beat out of him. I mean, he's persecuted. He's run out of town. He's, he's fed up with them. Mm-hmm. Jesus appears to him in a night vision. He says, Paul, go back into Corinth. Mm-hmm. He said, for I have many people in this city. Mm-hmm. I, and can you imagine Paul scratching his head saying, wait a minute. Did everybody there just ran me out of town on a rail. Mm-hmm. They rejected the gospel. If I go back, they're going to kill me. Jesus says, no, no harm will come to you. Go back. Preach indiscriminately and universally. I have many people there. In other words, Jesus is saying there are sheep there. They look like goats now. They haven't come to faith, but they're mine. Go back and preach to everyone in Corinth. And Paul went back, spent 18 months there. And those who were among God's elect heeded the gospel call and by God's grace came to faith. Christ says, um, 
no one can come to me unless the Spirit draws him or my Father draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then, then he goes to Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how much I have longed to gather you together. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this passionate cry, mm-hmm. and you're saying, well, well, why didn't you call him? You know, mm-hmm. but that's the tension. Mm-hmm. That's the tension right here, Genesis chapter 6. I'm sorry that I have made man. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you together. There is this tension, folks, and we're not trying to solve the tension, are we? No. Or, no we're, we're not trying to explain it away. We're, we're seeking acknowledging that. that it's there and, and wrestling with it. And if you leave here with tension, then then I think you're in a better place. I, I think you're very biblical. If you leave here having solved it, mm-hmm. you, you've gone to one extreme or the other. Yeah. If you're feeling tension and a, a pull in two directions, that's good because that means you're acknowledging the existence in the Word of God of both truths. You're not denying one set of text for the sake of another. You're embracing both and saying, Lord, help me to understand as best I can how these fit together, how these harmonize. And if they don't harmonize in my mind, God, that's okay as long as they harmonize in yours. We're not talking about contradiction. We're not telling you to embrace contradiction, folks. We're not telling you to be irrational. We're not telling you to give up your mind because whenever God speaks, he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. We're saying that there are certain things in Scripture, the Trinity, hypostatic union, Christ becoming fully God, fully man, salvation by um, uh, human responsibility to come to God and God electing us. These are all tensions, folks, and if you feel that tension, as Sam said, that's very important for you. We've done it's our healthy. job. It's healthy. It's good. Don't be offended by it. Don't allow it to drive you away from God's Word in despair. Uh, let it lead you back into God's Word, seeking greater illumination from the Spirit to help you grasp these truths. What is it that is requiring you to have faith in your beliefs? Tension will. Mm-hmm. And uh, solving tension won't. Um, folks, it's been great. Thank you for joining us. This is uh, talking about unconditional election. Next week, we're going to talk about the next letter, which is the L. Is that right? It is. That's are right. we going to jump into the L already? We are. All right. We're going to talk about limited atonement or particular redemption or what's the other? Definite word? atonement. Definite atonement. Next week. So we look forward to seeing you. Thanks for joining us again. Any questions, any comments, we love to hear from you. One of the things that you can do is uh, go to the iTunes store and write a comment about the podcast. We love to hear you do that, see you do that. You can also write to us at theologyunplugged at reclaimingthemind.org. Tell us uh, about your thoughts. Tell us any questions you have. We'll be taking questions uh, in the later broadcast. All right, until next week, have a great day, and may God bless you. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner, And for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.